Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Periodic Talks. Hi, I'm Gillian Jacobs. And I'm Deanna Reasonover. This is Periodic Talks. Each week, we rediscover our passion for science, tech, engineering, math, and this week even, material science. It's STEM for those of us who got a C-plus in C++. Gosh, I tried. (laughs) I'm just proud I know what C++ is. I've never attempted to learn it. (laughs) Yeah, the only job I know is coffee. (laughs) Gillian, how was your week? It was good, and I discovered a bird fact that I was Ooh. so excited to share with you. Let's hear it. Well, I, I'm realizing that working on this show, now whenever I see an animal, I immediately want to look them up and find out if there are any interesting facts about them. So I, I saw a crow, and I immediately Googled crows. Sure. <laughs> and the thing that I learned that I never knew before because I know they're very smart and they can use tools and they can remember people. That Mm -hmm. I knew. But the thing I learned this week is about the phenomenon of anting in birds. Have you ever heard of this? No. What is this? All right. So, okay. This is ways in which birds use ants. And there are active and passive ways that birds use ants. The passive way would be birds sitting intentionally on top of ant hills and letting the ants crawl all over them. And the active one, I guess, would be the example I see in this article is a blue jay holding an ant in its bill, spreads and lowers its wings and brings its tail forward between its legs, whipping the outer wing and tail feather with the ant. And so people don't know exactly why birds do this. There are some (laughs) theories. (laughs) I'd never heard of this before. Um, And so some people think that it is comfort behavior or feather maintenance because it happens in the late summer and early fall, uh, which is a period of heavy avian molting. And they think that the the birds are using the ants to help them uh, soothe irritants on their feathers or with molting or or that they use the ants uh, to control parasites such as biting lice or feather mites, which live in the inner catacombs of a bird's plumage. I love this language around antics. What beautiful, like, language. Oh, my gosh. And then I read one article that had something that I haven't seen anywhere else where they thought that the the birds were almost getting drunk or high off of the ants. 
but uh, that has not been substantial. Now I'm picturing like a drunk bird being like, when the ants hit your skin and the parasites within, that's an anting. (laughs) I'm just picturing a drunk bird like Jay walking down the street. (laughs) Wait, so is it? uh, No, I do have a question. Sure. Because you were looking up crows. Is it specifically crows that they tend to observe this with? Or is it kind of um, like... I see here 20 common birds that ant. A grouse, turkey, horned owl. I won't go on and on and on. But no, apparently it is not just crows or ravens. How about you? How was your week? My week was good, but my D&D group didn't meet. What? Why? I, you know what? The DM needed a break, but I've got some big plans for when we come back. <laughs> I... Don't really know that much about D&D. I would love to hear more about the group. Um, okay, so first of all, uh, I play a halfling rogue. <laughs> it's really fun. You know what? I look at D&D as my way of kind of like approaching the world where if it was if it was me, but in different circumstances. Like I, I am a true neutral in alignment, which is I will fight if I must and if it will benefit me and I will not. Uh, otherwise, I will run away. I love running away. And what is your character's name, if you'd care to reveal? She is Drayla Leaf. I absolutely love her. I played her in three games. And even though I took her back down to level one for this game, she's she's my friend. She's me. Aww. She's little me. Do you have like a drawing, a, a representation of your character? I think I'm going to have somebody commission something. I just decided this. It's going to be fun. Ah, I'm so excited. Okay, I'm nerding out about this. <laughs> but we actually have a special guest during story time, a very special guest. Yes. We will be joined by Lilan Bowden, who you may have seen on Parks and Rec, Always Sunny, Drunk History, and the Disney Channel show Andy Mack. She's going to share the story of a Mexican-American botanist who went on grand adventures throughout the Americas. We're also talking to Dr. Anissa Ramirez. She's a material scientist, which is this really cool intersectional study of matter. It's somewhere between chemistry and physics. And we get some examples of that as we talk about her book, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. And we also talked to Dr. Ramirez about what drew her to science in the first place. Yes, uh, we got to do this interview together. I absolutely loved talking to Dr. Ramirez. And I can't wait for everybody to take a listen. So you've been wanting to be a scientist since you were four years old. When you imagined it at four, what did you think that being a scientist would be like? And how is that similar or different to what it turned out to be? I really wanted to know how the world worked. I had a lot of questions. I used to take things apart. Uh, my, my dad repaired computers. And when he came home, I was so excited to see him. But I was actually more excited to see his toolbox because I would take things <laughs> apart. And so I just want to know the way the world worked. And when I found out that that's what scientists do, that's what put me on that path to becoming a scientist. Now, later on, I learned that science is actually very, very different. Uh, You have to learn a whole bunch of things. And sometimes the way those things are taught don't necessarily resonate with everybody, but you have to learn a whole bunch of things. And you kind of people, some people have different ways of approaching science. Some people just try things out. Some people read a lot and then do what they think the next thing is. So it's really about figuring out what your own approach to science is. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about how you started down the scientific path. Do you remember your grades from middle school science? I will tell you, mine began with the same letter as my first name. So um, <laughs> how did you do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
My science classes were great. Uh, it, it, in fact, it was the only class that really resonated with me. Um, I went to Catholic school, so we had religion, and that was very, that was that didn't feel very human. Um, we had history. I never saw myself in the history books. We had math. I don't need to say anything else about math, but <laughs> science, science was the thing that resonated with me because it was it was giving me a toolkit to understand the world, and so I, I did very well. And I was also fortunate. I had some really geeky teachers that made science seem fun. Mm-mm. That's amazing. So, you know, you went on to study material science and engineering at Stanford, but what is material science? Ah, uh, material science. I, I liken material science to my home state of New Jersey. If you are from New Jersey, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're not from New Jersey, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Meaning that it's this, it's this place that's kind of wedged between two more well-known entities. New Jersey, that's Philadelphia and New York. And for, new, and for material science, that's chemistry and physics. Chemistry and, and physics are far more well understood. There are far more books about those two. But material science takes a little bit of both. It's like a, a smorgasbord. We're, we're interested in how atoms bond. And so that's the chemistry part. But we're also interested in, in how the resulting material behaves. If I apply electricity to it, if I apply light to it, that's how physicists think. So we're kind of right in, in between those two fields. And in my mind, I think that's where the, the exciting stuff happens. That's very, very cool. Do you remember the moment that it drew you in? Yeah, I mean, I certainly do. Because way back at Brown, when I was taking Introduction to Material Science, which was a prerequisite course, I was of the impression that this was going to be a boring course. Hmm. And I was under that impression because everyone told me that this is going to be a boring <laughs> course. <laughs> And I was like, okay, buckle in. This is going to be, you know, snooze fest. But, and I had that perspective. I'm like, this is, this is just going to stink. But my professor, uh, Professor Friend, he said something that really blew me away. He said, the reason why we don't fall through the floor <laughs> and the reason why my sweater is blue and the reason why the lights work all has to do with the interaction of atoms. And if you can understand that, you can get them to do new things. <laughs> Now, that blew my mind because I was like, wait a minute, these things that we cannot see are in charge of everything that we do. So if I get to know them, I'm going to be able to make new things. Hold on. This is what I want to do. And so that boring course of introduction to material science actually turned out to be uh, the course that put me on the path to becoming a material scientist. So you're talking about, you know, that material sciences lies between these two fields and that it talks about the connections between them. So what are the kinds of connections that interest you the most? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. I was interested in, there's these weird materials that if I had a wire here and if I were to twist it around my finger and then heat it, that wire would uncurl on its own. Hmm. It's called a smart material. And scientists are really good about this. We name things what they are, like sunspot <laughs> is a spot on the sun. So a smart material is a material that acts like a human. And so this material uncurls on its own. And so I, when I saw that, I was like, okay, what the heck is that? How does it do that? So I was intrigued about how that happens, what are the atoms doing, and also how to change the atoms to do it at different temperatures, to do it in different ways. So that material is called a smart material. And so I worked on that for a long time. When I was a kid, and even still recently, I thought science was one particular thing. I thought there was one way to be a scientist. Mm. And I think in talking to her, I'm learning that's not true. Yeah, that there are so many fields within science. Yeah, I think I'm still just stuck in biology, 
Okay. Yep. Chemistry, whatever the class, yep. the course descriptions were in high school. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes, exactly. I am still stuck in that too. And so that's part of why I love this is that I'm like, she made me excited about a field that I had never heard about. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's get a little bit into this book because it was an excellent book, by the way. I really loved it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. So your book is called The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. And you say that the book seeks to create a new connection to the world, to history, and to each other. What does that mean? Well, when we teach science, we we teach it in a way that it's separated from culture. Mm-hmm. You know, a bunch of guys, and I mean that guys in white lab coats, just tinkering away. And it has nothing to do with our lives. And what I wanted to do is put science in the context of history. It's very much part of our lives. And also these inventions, they change history. They change us. So what I wanted to do is tell stories about inventions and inventors so that people would feel connected with science and also put those stories in a historical context so we can see what life was like before that invention and then what life was like after that invention. I loved your book so much. And I was curious about the title because you use the word alchemy. And I'd always read about alchemy as this attempt to turn other metals into gold um, and something that seemed impossible and almost like people were attempting to use magic to make gold. But you related to chemistry. And that's really fascinating to me. Can you talk about that? Well, alchemy is actually the origin. uh, It's the field that started chemistry, where people would put together different things to create new things. And alchemy had the intention of of changing metals that weren't very valuable to us and seeing if it was possible to make them turn into gold. In fact, there were laws that were passed in the 1700s. People thought that they would eventually be able to turn turn things into gold. And so people were really concerned about the the price of things because they had all this new money that would happen. So alchemy was a very, very big field. And it's, it's where chemistry came from. And alchemy is about transforming one thing that you don't think is very useful into something that you do think is useful. And so that happens in invention all the time. You have some parts, you put them together, and you create something new. And what I'm trying to get across in the alchemy of us is that these inventions, which we created, actually transformed us. Mm. They transform culture. They transform language. They transform how we connect with each other. So that's why I use the word alchemy. Okay. Now your book focuses on eight specific inventions, and it really does describe how they each help transform the human experience. So going through them, we've got clocks, photographic film, light bulbs, and a few others. Now, what was it about these materials that made you focus on them? Well, first, they're simpler inventions than what's surrounding us today, such as, you know, artificial intelligence and facial recognition. So the reason why I looked at simpler inventions is I wanted to show that these simple things that we don't even think about, that are some of them are quite old, have actually changed us. Hmm. The alchemy of us is really a gymnasium so that we can be critical about technology by looking at very, very simple devices. And the reason why I chose those is because I was really looking for events in history where things changed significantly because that invention existed or because it didn't exist. Hmm. And then also I wanted to tell you a little bit about uh, the people who made these, the inventors behind them. And lastly, how that technology shapes society. So I found a strong eight cases that did that. And again, I wanted to really tell good, good stories. So if, if I found a story and it wasn't all that interesting, that didn't make the book. So there were eight selection, eight that really did a good job. And I said, okay, then this, this is the book. 
Let's get into some specific stories from the book. We have a few passages that we've highlighted that we want to talk about. This one is about clocks. And there's a passage where you say, we should sleep better than our ancestors. Yet 50 to 70 million Americans suffer from sleep disorders or sleep deprivation. Poor sleep seems to be the cost of our inability to get off the clock. I would love for you to talk about our relationship to time uh, versus how our ancestors related to time. Sure. Well, before the Industrial Revolution, we used to sleep differently. We would sleep in two different segments. We would sleep for a little bit, wake up in the middle of the night, do things around the house, and then go back to sleep. And then those two became consolidated because of technology. First, artificial light, which allowed us to go to bed later, and then the clock, which forced us to get up earlier because we had to get to the factory. And and the reason why I said we should sleep better is because look at all those technologies for uh, beds and pillows and aromatherapy. Back in the day, people used to have these pots in their rooms that made their room smell. I won't say what's in the pot because <laughs> they didn't want to go to the outhouse. And we can't get any sleep. They had it worse. And actually, back in the day, Multiple people were in the bed and not someone who was a loved one, you know, your significant other. It was like, you know, your cousin. So and there weren't, you know, weighted blankets back then. So we should sleep better because we have better technology. But because we're staying up and we're watching Netflix and, you know, our relationship with time is what's actually making it that we're not able to sleep as well. Hmm. All this time I have been blaming my wife watching Bob's Burgers right before bed every <laughs> night. So I, I, I don't know her. I can't say anything. <laughs> Great show. Great show. Okay. Though. okay. Well, I, I thought that in same same sort of area, um, clocks and time, your connection that you make between Louis Armstrong's music and time, I think was the closest I've ever come to understanding the theory of relativity. I, I loved how you tie in art and culture into your chapters about science and material science. Can you maybe explain a little bit about how you relate Louis Armstrong's music and relativity of time? Oh, boy, just that. Just that. Just, a, can just you that. Can you tweet <laughs> Einstein's name? <laughs> well, I was trying to find a way for everyone to enter into the world of science. And I wrote a book before the Alchemy of Us, which was about football and science. I, I, I'm all about opening windows and doors. However I can bring you in, I'm going to bring you in. And I know music is important to people. It's important to me. I love music. I can have a bad day, turn on some music, I have a better day. That's the power of music. And so here I am trying to describe Einstein's theory of relativity. And I think I'm doing an okay job. Um, I'm explaining it to my mom. She's nodding, but I think she's just being polite. <laughs> and then it dawned on me that what I'm trying to get across is that time actually stretches and we feel that in music. Hmm. Now, is there a scientific basis for that? It ends up, yes. And Louis Armstrong is a good case study for that. If you look at the musical sheet for what uh, Louis Armstrong should be playing, he should be playing notes at a precise time, but he isn't. He's playing it a little sooner or a little later, or he's playing it shorter or a little longer. And he is actually messing up our sense of time. Hmm. We're looking for a, a beat and he's not doing that. He's stretching our sense of time, just like Einstein showed that time stretches. In his theory of relativity, he actually showed that time actually slows down. If you're going really, really fast, 
your time is going to be slower than someone who's stationary. And they've actually proven this. I know it sounds crazy, but they got two atomic clocks, very, very precise clocks. They put one on a plane and they kept one stationary. They brought those clocks together after the first clock went on a trip around the earth. When they brought them together, one clock was slightly different. It wasn't that there was anything wrong with the clock. They proved that Einstein was right. Time stretches. So not too many people are going to get that, but they are going to understand how music can change our sense of time. And so that's why I did that. After reading her book and doing the interview, I really was looking at the objects around me (laughs) in a different way. You know, I'll never look at a light bulb the same way again. Yeah. (laughs) But I I mean, it's like... (laughs) Someone texted me like, I keep waking up at three o'clock in the morning staring at the ceiling. I'm like, well, did you know that we actually used to sleep in two segments? It was called bifurcated sleep. (laughs) I did the same thing. That's why I'm laughing because I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, it's totally fine. My ancestors used to do this all the time. It's totally fine. (laughs) All right, let's take a break and then we'll be back with more from Dr. Ramirez. We're back. So I want to get into another chapter from your book, The Alchemy of Us. My favorite chapter was actually Capture, which talks about the development of photographic film. So photographic film has this history and deep ties to racism. Um, And we actually learn the story of an activist named Carolyn Hunter and a photographer slash activist named Ken Williams that really fought against that racism. Um, Can you tell us that story? Well, Caroline Hunter was an African-American girl about 20 years old or so, and she's working for the most beloved company in the country in 1970, and that's the Polaroid Corporation. And she's actually working on the best technology, which is this instant camera. You press a button, and in 60 seconds, you get uh, an image, which is fantastic back then because many people don't know this, but you didn't get images right away. It took you a week before you got your images. So she's working on the IT technology at the IT company. So one day she's going to lunch with her friend, Ken Williams, who's in the art department, and they see a mock-up for an identification card. And what's strange is it says, Department of the Mines, Republic of South Africa. Uh, When they look at this, they look at each other and they're like, okay, this is strange because they both know that South Africa in 1970 had an apartheid police state system where black South Africans were completely oppressed by the government. And so they went to explore what Uh, what was going on, what was Polaroid's involvement with South Africa. And what they found is that every Black South African had to carry with them a passbook, a 20-page document which told them where they could go, where they could not go. And at the heart of the passbook was a picture made by Polaroid. And they looked at each other and they're like, this is not right. So they asked management about this and management's like, oh, we don't have a presence in South Africa. And if we do, it's very, very small. But they had proof. They read newspapers from South Africa that said that this was part of uh, a process that buttressed this apartheid system. So they did something about this. And this is before Facebook and, and Instagram. You know, they were activists. And so they had to do it old school, which is type out bulletins and put them on cars and, and you know, telephone poles and then have rallies to let people know about uh, Polaroid's involvement in South Africa. It took seven years, but eventually Polaroid withdrew from South Africa. Now, uh, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, ahead, please. No, please. 
Uh, we do this all the time. 20 minutes. <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> Polite people. No, no you. you, you, no, you, no, no, you. No, you. Gillian, after you, please. Okay. Um, well, you, were, you touched on this already a bit. Um, you talked about this moment in college that helped you regain your sense of wonder. Can you talk about how important those moments are and how that's influencing your work now as an educator, a writer, a science communicator? Oh, it's so important. It's a great question. The way that they taught science when I was taking it, it was not engaging at all. And I was fortunate because I fell in love with science at an early age because I watched a television program called 321 Contact. Yes. And that, 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 yeah, that kept me motivated. <laughs> and so when I had these boring classes, I would say, oh, no, I know that science is better than this. And then I would have a great teacher and they would remind me of fa how fantastic science was. And then I would have a bunch of other boring courses. And I'm like, oh, no, I know science is better than this. So it's important that we have great teachers or something inspiring people as they go through, as they call it, the STEM pipeline. Mm -hmm. It would be better if we just engaged them, but let's at least empower them so that they can survive. And that's why I do what I do, which is I'm trying to write books to get more people inspired to think about science, to think that science is for them. Uh, so, so that's the reason why I take the approach that I do. Now, you also talk about uh, the many people who sometimes separate or competing work contributes to an insight or innovation. Now, that really goes against the lone genius model of thinking about innovation. Why is that so important? Well, that lone genius model is complete garbage. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's a myth and it, it needs to stop because what it does is it makes people feel that science isn't for them. I'm not smart like so-and-so. I'm not going to win a so-and-so. Because we're, you know, we're, we're vaulting genius that way. And I believe everyone has some genius. There's something that you're very good at that no one else is good at. We just need to find it. So in The Alchemy of Us, I tell you the story of, you know, these people that we have huge myths about. And I actually tell you a little bit about their personality, how they got help, because that's really how science happens. And so we need to dismantle that, that uh, myth of the lone genius was there one story that you came across in your research that was really unexpected, a, a big surprise for you, an aha moment for you in writing the book? I think the chapter on light, uh, where I talk about how it impacted our health. Mm -hmm. I talked to one scientist and he says that we have two modes. We have a growth mode and a repair mode. In our growth mode, we have growth hormones going through our bodies, in our daytime, in our, which, is, which is in our daytime mode. And in our nighttime mode, we're in a rest mode. And then he kind of blew me away. He said, oh, yeah, you know, we're slightly taller than our ancestors. And I'm like, yeah, of course we are. He's like, no, no, no. One of the reasons is because of artificial light. And I said, explain yourself. <laughs> and because artificial light is, is rich in blue, our bodies have a detector in our eye. When we see blue light, we go into growth mode. And so our ancestors use sunlight and then they use candlelight. Candlelight is kind of a redder light. But we use artificial light most of the time, most of the day. And so we are in growth mode all day. And so that's why we're slightly taller than our ancestors, in addition to better nutrition and medicines and things like that. So the fact that a light bulb, something that we don't even think about, has that kind of impact, that really knocked my socks off. I actually have a follow-up question about us being taller. You were talking about how candlelight is redder, and that's something that we measure in color temperature, which is measured in kelvins. Mm -hmm. uh, but I've personally observed that a lot more um, light bulbs are daylight balanced as opposed to being that soft white, which is almost a bluer light. It's closer mm -hmm. to the blue end of the spectrum. Do you think that that will continue to change us and change our height as we move towards mm -hmm. these different forms of light? That's a good question. And thank you for talking nerdy to me. I really appreciated that. 
<laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't know. I think people are being, becoming a little smarter about light bulbs. There are actually smart bulbs that are out there that will change bluer light during the day and redder light at night. I mm. think they're going to be much more popular. Also, our devices, they generate a lot of blue, but we do have a nighttime setting. So I think we're going to be a little smarter about light bulbs. Um, so I'm not answering your question fully because I think that there will be better offerings in the future, to be honest. Mm. Very cool. <laughs> so the central idea that you're exploring is that we shape things and our things shape us. So what materials have shaped you? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, this pencil right here is shaping me because that's how I wrote the book. And this book and that book made it possible for me to talk to you guys. So I guess that's one thing. Um, what materials are shaping? Me? I mean, I think the biggest thing is our computers, uh, you know, cell phones and, and your laptops. Um, I, I miss when I had a simpler computer because I just feel sucked in by my computer these days. Uh, so I'm, I have, I'm trying to form a new relationship with my computers, but they're also wonderful because I get to do wonderful things. I get to do zoom with people and I, I get to, uh, search anything I want to know through Wikipedia. So the computer is fantastic, but I, I am learning that I need to have a new relationship with the computer. Would you ever go back to a flip phone? What? No, what? Huh? What? No. <laughs> well, I was just thinking as she was talking about wanting to have a different relationship to her computer that, you know, the the phone. I'm just really sad when I get that weekly screen report on Sunday, <laughs> which tells me how many hours I spent per day on my phone. And I don't like the numbers on it. <laughs> so I get my weekly screen report. It only started coming to me like during the pandemic. And I read it and I'm like, and? <laughs> Okay. Why are you giving me this? I'm fine. Thank you. I also, there there was something um, that we didn't touch on in the interview, but it was a cool thing in the book too. Along the lines of the blue light um, keeping us awake, uh, there was a recommendation from someone in the book that you should walk around outside in blue light in the morning and it'll give you more energy. And so I, um, I definitely, I'm not doing it every day, but I'm trying to walk around <laughs> outside and some blue light in the morning to give me some energy because I also think I'm drinking a lot of coffee these days. <laughs> and if someone gives you a coffee report saying how much coffee you've drank, you can say, and? Okay. <laughs> so um, looking back, what's a question that you've spent most of your life trying to answer? Ooh, the, the question I have been trying to answer in the world of science is, do I fit in? Um, I mean, uh, this is a podcast, so people can't tell, but I, I'm an African-American woman and, uh, I have, I've seen my reflection once when I was a child watching three, two, one contact. And then the next real scientist that I saw who was of color was when I was a graduate student and I must've been, I don't know, 25. That's a long time to wait to see your reflection. And the whole time I didn't see myself and was often reminded that I didn't belong. So I had to kind of unpack and, and, and figure out if I do belong. And, and now I feel pretty certain I do, but I'm, you know, I'm a little older now. Um, sure, I wish I could have seen more people who look like me and encouraged me to convince me. Um, but I eventually had to just uh, answer that question myself. So that's not the science question, but just uh, it's, it's my life in science that has been my major question. I don't know. I, I love science so much 
that that's the reason why I hung in there, even though mm-hmm. I didn't see my reflection. Like if I'm looking at uh, a passage in a text and it's teaching me something new, that's the same buzzy feeling I used to have as a kid. So that's the thing that resonated with me. And if I didn't see my reflection, it, you know, that wasn't the thing that what got me motivated. I would hope I just wanted to see my reflection a little bit more. I think the numbers are better now, but not so much when I was going through the process. Do you have any words for people who maybe see a path for themselves, but they don't see their reflection? Do you have any words of advice for them? Oh, I say find your tribe. And what's so great about this wonderful thing called the interwebs, you can find people, you know, uh, using the internet, there are groups. You may not even be in the same, you know, part of the country, but find each other and motivate each other. It's not a competition. Uh, just, you know, encourage each other. So when I was uh, going through the process, the internet was not used that way. You know, I had, I had, uh, there was a, there was a black graduate student group back at Stanford. I used to hang out with them. And actually we used to hang out with the folks from Berkeley. They had better parties. So I would go hang out with them. Uh, That's what got me motivated. That's how I saw my reflection because it was my generation that had more numbers and not the older generation. So I would just say, find your tribe, find people who are doing the same thing, uh, and that remind you that you're a rock star. That's what I would say. Well, um, you know, you talked about that buzzy feeling that you got, and that relates, I think, also to your work about trying to make science fun. Why is it important that science is fun for people? That's a good question. And I, and I have to admit that I'm actually going through a bit of an evolution. Uh, I think mm. science is fun because we want to engage people. But I don't think we should keep it as science as entertainment. I think once huh. we engage people, then we need to give them the tools to ask hard questions like I do in The Alchemy of Us. So I make science fun by telling stories. That's what I do in my book. And you're like, oh, I'm willing to hang in there. This story sounds interesting. But then at the end, you start thinking in new ways. So there's an evolution. It's, it's fun, but then it's like giving you a tool and you don't even know it. So in so long ago, if you asked me, why do I think science is fun? It's, it's because I think it's important to hook people. But the mm-hmm. next thing is like, what do you do with them once you have them hooked? Mm-hmm. And so that's where I am now, the next level, the next, next part of my evolution. So what's next? Well, I'm still figuring that out. But I think it's about getting people to be more in touch with their inner scientist. So mm-hmm. be engaged. That's the science is fun part. But then also think critically. And think critically, it sounds very stark and it's not very fun, but I'm just, I'm just saying be more engaged with the world. And just another way I could put it is like, have a little bit of side eye when you're looking at the world. When someone gives you a new technology, what we used to be doing is say, hey, that's great. And I want you to just be like, yeah, that's nice. What, what's going on? How is this made? Uh, how is this going to change my life? That's what I want. I want everybody to just have a little bit of, of attitude when it comes to technology. So that's what's next. Uh, you know, you talk in your book about how, you know, time is relative and it feels like this time has gone by so fast because this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you. Okay, let's take one last break. And then we have got a story about a woman who rewrote her own story. She transformed her life, discovering a passion for botany and a thirst for adventure. We're back. It's story time. And we've got a very special guest this week. Uh, You will know her from Disney's Andy Mack, uh, from Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Parks and Rec, Drunk History. It's Leela Bowden! 
<laughs> Thanks, you guys, for having me. <laughs> Will you do me a favor and tell us about Asian AF? I hear you've been doing some new exciting work with it. <gasps> yes, thank you for asking. So Asian AF um, in the before times was a live show at the Upright Citizens Brigade Upright Citizens Brigade Theaters in New York and Los Angeles. Um, and the Los Angeles chapter um, has taken our show online digitally. So you can um, find our shows if you follow the Asian AF account at Asian AF Show on Twitter and Instagram. And it's a variety comedy show with all Asian people. And I know that you've had some really incredible guests, uh, like Keiko Agena, who's been on our show. Yes, Keiko was one of the original hosts of Asian AF. Um, we've also had Jenny Yang, stand-up comedian. Uh, we had Joel Kim Booster on that show as well. We are talking stand-up comedians, um, performers, sketch comedians, and improv, which is the segment that I host and am a part of as well, because I love to do improv, uh, featuring all Asian talent. And it's a funny show. It's so funny. And let's get to this week's story. So this is the story of Inez Mejia, a Mexican-American botanist. So this woman proves that it's never too late to start a new adventure because I'm pretty sure she started living her best life after she was 50 years old. She's born in Washington, D.C. in 1870 to an American mom and a Mexican dad. As a kid, she's an introvert, loves reading, writing, and being outside. After high school, Inez moves to Mexico, where her father owns a ranch. She takes over when he passes away. A few decades go by. Inez is still living in Mexico. She's been married twice. Husband number one dies at a young age. She marries again, then divorces that guy. He ran the family ranch into financial ruin. That's a lot. That's that's a lot of hard, hard hits. So at this point, Inez has a mental breakdown. You know, like when life keeps just taking swings at you and you've just had enough, she's at that point. So she tries to start over, moves back to America and rebuilds her life in San Francisco. And it's here that she reconnects with nature. She taps into a love that she's had since childhood. She becomes drawn to environmentalism. She joins groups like the Sierra Club and becomes passionate about saving the redwoods from being cut down. And with this newly reinvigorated passion for the environment and interest in conservation, she goes back to school. At 51 years old, she enrolls in college. I mean, just like, I daydream about going back to school sometimes, but that's hard for me to imagine right now for me. Let's imagine at 51, when the kids are less than half my age, I mean, it, it would be a little hard. It's really awesome, but it also takes a lot of guts. It's different being a woman today, but in the 1900s, that will stand out. She's an older woman seeking an advanced education. So she's probably getting some strange looks over here. Right. So as part of her studies at the University of California at Berkeley, she starts collecting and categorizing plants in the field. And then an opportunity comes up to go on a botanical expedition in Mexico, so she leaps at it. So in 1925, Yanez goes back to Mexico, but now she's at the start of a new adventure. In Mexico, she's in a group being led by a researcher, but Yanez is like, you know what? I'd rather be on my own. And she drifts away from the group. I just can't believe she does that. I mean, every time, like, 
I'm out in nature. I'm like, stick with the pack. (laughs) But this is Inez Mejia we're talking about. And this is the beginning of what's going to be a two-year journey for her exploring and collecting plant life in Mexico. During her travels through wild and uneven terrain, she collects more than a thousand plant specimens. And then her efforts gain her all this newfound respect in the world of botany. And she starts doing more expeditions on her own, finding a sense of purpose in the work. In her writing, she says, quote, I have a job where I produce something real and lasting. That is so powerful after everything she's been through. Yeah, so her age and gender raise some eyebrows, but she refuses to be held back by other people's limiting beliefs. She writes, A well-known collector and explorer stated very positively that it was impossible for a woman to travel alone in Latin America. I decided that if I wanted to become better acquainted with the South American continent, the best way would be to make my way right across it. So, she journeys to South America, traveling about 3,000 miles along the Amazon River from its delta to its source in the Andes Mountains. She spends long months out in the field. She's riding horseback. She's sleeping outdoors before Wild was even a book and a movie. There was Inez Mejia. Frankly, this is very shocking to a lot of people. I mean, it's shocking to me. It's shocking to me. She travels to Alaska, becoming the first botanist to collect plants in a region that's now called Denali National Park. She does have travel guides, but she's still forging a path thought to be forbidden for women. During her personal excursion, she writes, quote, I don't think there is any place in the world where a woman can't venture. In total, she spends... 13 years as an adventurer and collects more than 145,000 plant specimens. It is quite the journey, and they turn out to be her twilight years. In 1938, she's diagnosed with lung cancer during her last expedition. A few months later, she dies at 68 years old. But Inez Mejia also made great contributions to the world of botany, including discovering about 500 new plant species, and some of them are even named after her. I don't blame you if you want to hear more of this story, so I recommend checking out a short documentary about Inez Mejia by American Masters on PBS. You can find it online. Thanks, Lilan. That was a great story. It really was. I love this episode so much. Me too. Okay, I have to ask. I know you have a big interest in birds and insects. Have you had any interest in botany or in growing things? Yes. So I remember as a little kid, my grandmother was always trying to sprout avocado seeds. So (laughs) she always had them on the windowsill and she had toothpicks stuck in them, but Never really seemed to take off, but I have managed to sprout two avocado seeds successfully. I have little avocado trees now growing, and I, I, I'm now worried about transferring them because they're in water mm-hmm. to a pot. And I'm so I've been trying to look up what's the proper soil for an avocado tree and how to do it properly because I'm worried I'm going to kill them transferring them from water to soil. Don't you worry. They're going to take to that soil like an avocado seed to water. It's going to be great. <laughs> I talked about my D&D character earlier. I got to say, after this episode, I'm considering playing a druid next time. Oh, they, they have a real connection to nature. Very exciting. 
Yeah, I wish I knew more about plants. I was hoping you were going to say you wish you knew more about D&D. That too! (laughs) All right, it's time for our credits. But first, if you've been enjoying the show, can I ask a favor? Can you please rate and review us? You can even just share your favorite episode with a friend. Literally, 60 seconds of your day would really, really help support the show. Oh, and we we got a very lovely review from someone named Alex H. Uh, They gave us five stars and said this about the podcast. Fantastic, digestible, incredibly informative about science and the people who make it. Plus, really enjoy hearing the passion for the subject from the hosts who are great. Uh, Thanks, Alex. We think you're great, too. Thank you so much, (laughs) Alex. If you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we might read yours on the show, too. Also, let us know what topics you find fascinating. Maybe we'll do an episode about it. This show is produced by Tamika Weatherspoon. Our engineering and theme music is by Brendan Burns. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson, and we get research assistance from Catherine Seifer. Our executive producers are Peter Clowney and Josephine Martirana. Periodic Talks is a production of Stitcher. Stitcher. 